Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and I'm thrilled to be here. Dr. Mark Cleon joins the podcast today. Mark is a highly regarded orthopedic surgeon, a triathlete, an ultra distance athlete, an author, a dedicated father and husband, and an all around good man. Let's jump right up to the front lines with Dr. Mark Cleon. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. All right, uh, Mark Cleon, welcome to ATBS, the podcast and coming into the pod ship from your part of the world. Thanks for joining me. I am so honored to be part of this. I, I must admit, I was so looking forward to this all day today. I'm glad to hear it. That brings a big smile to my face. And I know we were queued up to do some recording 10 days ago and then nine days ago and last week and timing just wasn't right. So it's always nice when there's flexibility and then when we're able to put it together. And uh, I'm glad you had a better day today and glad to be here with you. Absolutely. Life does get in the way of having fun sometimes, but just got to push through it. You got to roll with it, right? I think that's, uh, I'm sure we're going to get to that because I know what your motto in life is. And yeah, life's going to come at us and boy, doesn't it. And about the only thing we have any control over is how we react, how we respond. Correct. Yeah. I always tell my kids and anybody I come into contact with is that life is just another day of stress management. And that's really what it is. It's just Things get thrown at you and you have to just take it all in stride, try to keep a level head and just push through and accomplish the things that you need to do. And, you know, the next day rolls around and you're you're right back at it. I imagine in your house, I've not, you know, I've not been around you and your family, so I don't know how it works. But, you know, I know from having daughters of our own that are 18 and 19 years old, you know, we try and equip them with tools to do exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, and we all need them. We all need the quote unquote, stress management tools so that we can live our best lives because shit's going to come at us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. The ripe old age of 58, turning that corner at 60, you know, I realize how much my parents' influence has been on me. And you learn from those lessons of what to do and what not to do. And it's very easy to say to your kids, been there, done that, this is what you should do. But you can't always do that because they don't listen to that. You know, as I never listened to my parents when they said that to me, you know, why would they listen to me when I say that to them? So, you know, you have to carefully navigate uh, their psyche and how to effectively lead them, or like you said, give them the right tools to make those decisions for themselves. They're going to make a bunch of them, right? And, they, and hopefully they make, as I've said for years, the, the stack of good decisions is going to have to be, you know, many, 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 many times taller than the stack of poor decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly in today's world now, you know, with the two oldest going back to college, we're having nightly conversations about being safe and you know, it's hard. 21-year-old, 18-year-old think they're fairly invincible, but in essence, they really aren't. And just trying to reinforce and not be overbearing and saying, you must wear a mask, you must socially distance. It's just a true, trying to get a true understanding of what the ramifications of all of this are and how they have to be responsible in the world that's around them. And they have to be respectful of the other people that are around them. Two things that come to mind really quickly, one before we get too far away from it, is the idea, reality that 
as you just said about your parents, like, you know, when I was 18 years old, I knew so much more than my parents, as we just said. <laughs> and, you know, the lessons that really stick, the ones that really, you know, are with us for the long haul are not the things that our parents told us to be aware of or beware of. They're the things that we did and we stubbed our toes or we made a mistake and we ran into the shit storm that we created and figured our way out or, or what have you. Those are the lessons that stay with us. I can use the analogy of our kids. We have kids that are about the same age, 18 and 19 on my end. I think about this podcast, right? Like what we say and what we share well, it's up to anybody who listens to either further explore, integrate, discard. Hopefully, periodically, there are things that make people go, wow, okay, that's interesting. But for the most part, we're just queuing things up so that people explore their own curiosity and then have their own experiences because those are the ones that matter. But also to that point, there are the nonverbal cues that we give our kids, you know, that sometimes unbeknownst to you, really create the environment in which they perform, you know, so your body language, your interactions with other people's where they might see you sometimes gives them the tool to understand this is the right way of doing it, you know, because they see it, you know, it's, it's a movie in their face that says, wow, you know, that situation was handled really well. Or gee, you know, my dad's a jerk. You know, I can't believe he did that. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. But, you know, but I could honestly say, you know, and I won't admit it to my dad, but there were times that I felt like, hmm, I'm not sure that he handled that situation correctly. And, you know, whether it was reprimanding me or making me walk five miles home after I told him to go fuck himself, excuse my French, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that was necessarily appropriate. <laughs> But then again, I could say I kicked my kid out of a car one day because he was treating me like, you know, I was a chauffeur. So, right, you know, right. did I handle that correctly? No, but it certainly made an impression on him and he certainly learned respect. But yeah, well, and there are so many different tools and ways of going about things. And I was going to make some comment about you running 21 miles to, you know, to work in the city. You know, maybe that is where that came from when your dad booted you out and said, you got to find your <laughs> Could be. That was the start of all of it, I guess. <laughs> exactly. How did you get into the whole long distance ultra running marathoning triathlon? Well, well my long dad ago, me my dad made me walk five miles and <laughs> I found some solace and some rest and peace and internal vision. I said, God, I really like this. But I stored that away for many years before the craziness of ultra marathoning came out. Yeah, right, 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 right. You're an orthopedic surgeon. Correct. And your dad, I know he's a doctor. Was he an orthopedic surgeon as well? No, he's a gastroenterologist who specializes in liver disease. Gotcha. Gotcha. But also my sister is uh, also an infectious disease doctor down at the National Institute of Health. So I kind of come from a line. I got, I got sucked into the vacuum, as you might say, a little bit. Right. Is it good to have your sister at, is it the NIH? Is that what you said? At the NIH, yeah. I mean, yeah. Is it good or is that not good at the moment? No, it's great. I mean, she really has the inside track a little bit. Not that she has any more information than we have, but she does infectious disease. She doesn't do the coronavirus. She does some other specific stuff. But it's certainly her brain is very much geared towards interpretation of the scientific data. So I get a little bit better of a perspective of some of the studies that have come out. So it's been helpful. And certainly she's been a resource to a variety of my friends who have asked questions. So it's a good thing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think that's a nice segue into what we were talking about when we were pondering and discussing whether, you know, we wanted to do this and where would we go and what kind of subject matter would we root around in and bring up. And you talked about, I know you have a clinic and then I know you're associated with a hospital. And I thought the whole, you know, your frontline experience, if you will, when the COVID hit the fan in March, because you're in New York, everybody knows that New York was, things were going down. Can we go there? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think many of us that aren't there, you know, we're not in New York, Manhattan, in the neighborhood. You know, I live out in Park City, Utah. Things got weird here when the ski areas shut down, Vail decided to close the lifts and like, okay, wow, it's it's happening and it's happening rather quickly. 
we'd just come through Sundance Film Festival and, you know, lots of international people being in Park City. And we had our own thing, but not a New York thing. Right. A New York thing, it was an interesting experience. You know, obviously, I lived through 9-11 and that was its own bizarre event, uh, catastrophic event. This was similar, but this lasted such a long time and it caught people really, really off guard. New York was the back door of the coronavirus, despite what our leadership might have said. You know, we had an estimated 4 million people come through John F. Kennedy Airport from Europe, which clearly brought the virus to us. And it spread like wildfire. And, you know, obviously science is a moving target and it's not always exact. And there's lots of interpretations. But what eventually happened was it overran the hospitals from fear to real disease to calamity and death. You know, literally the institution, I am the director of orthopedics at a small community hospital that services the underserved area of the northern part of the Bronx called St. Barnabas Health System. And normally in that situation, it's a level two trauma, which brings in the vast majority of trauma patients. But it went from an ICU bed capacity of 16 ICU beds to well over 95 active ICU beds and all of coronavirus. These were people who were in respiratory distress, who were placed on ventilators or needed some other airway assistance. And on any given day, there were between 10 and 15 people dying a day. I mean, it was an utter madhouse from an organizational standpoint, from a staffing standpoint, from you know every aspect of healthcare that you could envision or any business that suddenly says, you know what, we have to now make ourselves five times bigger in 10 days the manpower, the equipment, the organization, it was mayhem. You know, asking a nurse, can you help me with this? They looked at you as if you were, you know, had five heads, you know, that you were some type of alien, like, no, I cannot help you. I've got 10 patients that I have to take care of and I cannot help you. So people were running frantically around. And I think that like any terrible situation, it was somewhat of a war situation, you know, slowly but surely, the organizational component got put in, the uh, supply management got put in. We were reusing equipment, you know, that you would never, never, ever do on any given day under normal circumstances. You know, frankly, you know, it lasted a solid six weeks where, you know, finally, I think with some of the treatments, with better understanding of the disease, to a certain extent, you know, a healthcare policy in New York State which was appropriate of wearing masks and social distancing and closing things down. You know, we flattened the curve, which is, you know, an amazing expression that most of us never heard about to a point at which now there's very few cases in New York and New York state. And, you know, it's, it's back to some aspect of normality, but boy, oh boy. I mean, what I see in the rest of the country now is just, it's a farce. It's a total farce. And I feel for every healthcare worker, for every essential worker, for every person that is trying to manage this, you feel like there's no backup. There's no end in sight. And it's really, it's a shame because a unified healthcare policy could have really changed things. You know, if you look at the rest of the world, people have managed this in a much better fashion than we have. And, you know, you could compare and say, well, we've got 330 million people. Those countries only have 20 million people. It's a big, it's not a big difference. It's just basic understanding of viral disease. And that's where my sister, you know, really clearly just kind of comes and says, you know, this is a disease that's transmitted by viral droplets. And if you stop those things, it doesn't spread. So long-winded story is it it was really a scary time in New York. and, And thankfully, we're hopefully on the other side of it right now. Thank you for sharing that, because when you told me that, you know, whatever that was, 10 or 12 days ago when we were when we were first talking about doing this, that because there's so much unknown around us, we're surrounded by unknown, we're surrounded by hmm, things that we never imagined and things that if eight months ago people were walking around and walking into gas stations with masks on, there's going to be big trouble, right? Like things that we couldn't even imagine are now very much in play and, and normal, if you will. Wherever we are in the country or in the world, having you paint that picture. So thank you for doing that of, you know, wow, this is what it was like in New York. And 
hopefully that information is being shared. I don't know how that information gets shared with places where now they're dealing with it on an increasing scale. Is there a way for that information to get passed? I'm sure people are looking at New York and going, okay, what did they do? I hope. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you when you look at the, and I don't know the exact numbers, but the quantity of literature that's being published now, you know, you always have to be careful. You know, they often say that a study about, let's say, a drug or an intervention probably takes a good five to seven to even 10 years to really fully implement. You know, it has to go through trials. It has to, you know, just be tested out there. And in order for it to be standardized practice, it takes many years. And, you know, we can touch upon a vaccine if you want to, but the amount of literature, case reports, observational studies that are being produced in the literature right now, those are all shared experiences. Some of them are peer reviewed, meaning that there's a board of people that look at it and say, oh, this is a great study. But there's a lot of stuff out there that is just being written up to say, and, and when we get to the proning you know, experience. Yeah, I think this stuff is getting out there. You know, we started a proning protocol. So when someone's on a respirator, although the device is mechanically ventilating your lungs, someone who's sedated, someone who cannot breathe on their own, paralyzed and sedated, so they don't know that, you know, there are certain restrictions of how much you can actually ventilate someone. Part of that is the so-called compliance of the lung how flexible the lung is. When you have a disease, a viral syndrome like COVID, where it created fluid into the lungs, the lungs being more dense, uh, more non-compliant, you know, it's very difficult to sometimes get oxygen into the lungs. So what the experience has been, and this has been in the past too, but started to take place with these patients is that when you turn them on their stomach, so-called proning, it actually helps the abdominal contents go away from the diaphragm and open up the lungs. And you're able to actually expose more of the lung surface or other parts of the lungs that when you're on your back, don't get exposed to the oxygen. So it actually helps to increase oxygenation, which again addresses you know, all of cellular function. So it's a very beneficial technique. So what had happened in our institution, like many other institutions, is that you know people had an experience in the past, but they didn't really have the manpower to do that. Some of these patients are extremely large. So you need four or five, six people, you know, to stand at a bedside, protect their airway because they have a, a tube that's in their mouth. They have got multiple lines, you know, putting medications through the veins, through an artery. And you have to protect all of these things as you flip a patient. It's not just a simple, hey, turn the patient over, they're okay. You have to pad them. You have to do wound care on their body. So it took a concerted effort, a coordinated effort of a team so I started the proning team at St. Barnabas. And, you know, we were going on any given day and proning five to 10 people at a certain hour. You would leave them on their stomach for about 18 hours, 16 to 18 hours, and then you turn them back on their backs. And it definitely showed some efficacy in terms of, you know, increasing their oxygenation, which ultimately is what you need to do to help the individual fight, you know, the disease process. So, you know, thankfully, we haven't had to do that recently, but every New York institution, at least our institution right now, is preparing for a second wave. So we have a protocol set up. We've got our team set up so that if and when, and God willing, it doesn't happen, there's a second wave. Our infrastructure is ready. We're ready to do this. We've learned a lot, and I think other places are learning a lot. So hopefully we won't have to have to manage that. There is a, uh, a phrase that's thrown around a bunch, and I've actually used it on the podcast, that we see signs in front of hospitals, right? Heroes work here. When I say that to people, you know, they're like, oh, I'm not really a hero. And what goes on inside those walls, in those buildings, healthcare, people like yourself, as you said, nurses and teams and people, and just going and going and going and figuring it out, right? Being fluid under super challenging circumstances is, you know, is, it's a marvel of humanity, really. It, it really is fantastic. You know, I appreciate those thoughts. And, and again, you know, I, we were talking about this the other night with some friends. We were in the city one day 
Um, you know, I live a little bit outside the city in Westchester, but at my office is in the city. And one day I was in the city and my wife was in and we were driving the car. And I don't know if you remember, you know, at seven o'clock, at least, or I guess around the country, you know, people were coming out, they were clapping, they were honking their horns. And I had never really personally experienced it. And my wife was actually getting ice cream at a store and I was sitting in the car and I must have been in my scrubs. And next thing you know, it's seven o'clock and people are honking the horns. They're looking at me. They're clapping at me. And, I, you know, I it's this is what I love to do. You know, this is it, it's my zest for knowledge, my zest for you know, especially being a surgeon, it's the problem that you need to solve. And I never feel like I'm a hero. I mean, it's, it has, doesn't even, even, even cross my mind. It's something that I think I was really put on this earth to do. And I appreciated all of it. And I thought it was intriguing and nice, but I've never, you know, considered myself to be in that position. I just think that that's what I do and that's what it's going to be. I know from personal experience over the years, you know, when we have friends get together as we do and, and you know, a bunch of guys, we're all in the same age range, you know, mid 50s, somewhere nearing 60. And, you know, people have questions about how do I do this and how do I manage this ailment? Or do you think I mean, I've done it. I've called you and said, hey, do you think I need to come and see you to have this particular knee problem solved or, or what have you? And, you know, I think it's. If I, I've never been, you know, through medical school, I've never been a doctor and, and, you know, but it's, it's part of, you know, it becomes part of your DNA, right? Like you're, you're helping people, you're fixing people, you're proning people, it, it, you know, it's, it's who you are, it's what you do. Right. You know, and again, I think this is kind of one of the silent lessons that my dad taught me, you know, my dad, it's so funny where we lived when I grew up in Manhattan, my dad's office was, let's say nine blocks South of our apartment. And the hospital was five blocks North of the apartment, just in a straight line. And my dad was always late for dinner because he was always taking care of his patients. And he was always late coming home because he was always taking care of his patients. And I can always remember him on the telephone talking to his patients. And it just rubbed off on me that he was really doing something that was helping other people. And you could just get a sense that he was so dedicated to this and it brought him such happiness. He never said to me, hey, Mark, you know, being a doctor is the greatest thing in the world. I think you should really do this. He, that was never uttered the word. And, you know, frankly, in my, we won't go into my sordid past, like your sordid past or any of our friends' sordid past, you know, of not getting into medical school after our glorious St. Lawrence education, you know, I sat after getting my last rejection from, you know, medical school and my dad, you know, crying and my dad saying, Mark, I don't care what you do in this world. He goes, I just want you to be happy and to know that you're doing something good for someone else. And that was, you know, the light bulb went off in my head and was like, okay, you know, I've had great four years, but now I really need to kind of take that next step and go towards the light and become the person that I need to be. Those were um, silent, but, um, you know, amazing words from him. Well, and, and then here we are uh, kind of back to where we started with, you know, having our own children that are in college, having that collegiate experience, that undergrad experience. I do have to say that, you know, when you say you don't want to bring up your sordid past, there are two ATBS, the podcast episodes where my entire sordid past is out there for everybody to hear. Just so you know, uh, <laughs> I've listened to those. <laughs> Um, anyway. I lived with part of those. <laughs> yeah, I know you did. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think of literally, and it, within the past two hours, I was at the packaging store with boxes that say Dormify on them, where Savannah, who's our 18-year-old daughter, is off to Alabama, and she, she leaves in 48 hours. Wow. And to start that experience, right? That it's the undergrad piece, but you like, you probably wouldn't have been ready for medical school. You probably wouldn't have been ready for that thought if you hadn't had the four years of undergrad where, you know, you make mistakes, you figure it out, you do your thing. And, you know, so there I am looking at Savannah thinking, what a privilege, number one, what a great experience you're about to have. There'll be highs and there'll be lows and there'll be grades and there'll be mistakes and there'll be all sorts of things. But what a fantastic experience you're about to have. 
Yeah, it really, really is. And my oldest son is now going to be a senior, and, you know, and is in that job seeking world. And just to see how he's almost put college behind him and he's already taking that next step of being in the business world. And it's just, it's an amazing maturation experience that I didn't anticipate, you know? I was still living in the college phase of listening to, you know, what party is this, what party is that? And now that's become, you know, it's still part of his life, but it's secondary now to the next phase of life. And I'm interested, you know, with my 18-year-old who's starting, going to be a sophomore at college, starting to get there, but I still also have a 15-year-old who's, you know, just coming out of that nasty, you know, 13, 14-year-old adolescent boy phase, you know, that we were all in you know, where he's saying, fuck you, dad, you know, so he's starting to mature. And it's just, it's amazing to watch these kids grow. Yeah, it really is. It's such a privilege and it's all different. They're all different. They're different within a family. Amazing how genes work. Amazing how, you know, the environment works. Like, well, the same house, same parents, same parenting. Wow. Are you guys different? And thankfully, we all are, right? Like we're roaring towards 8 billion of us on the planet. And, you know, we're all incredibly unique and bring our own special gifts to the world, which I'd love to then transition to not only are you an orthopedic surgeon, but you're an author, an athlete, avid triathlete and distance guy and ultra guy. And when did that come into your world? And then oh yeah, no, I've had enough life experiences that I think I ought to put together a book called Triathlon Anatomy and put a second version out there. Like when did that start? You know, I'll say that to a certain extent, I've always been somewhat athletic, certainly not at the level of your accomplishments in this world. I don't think I was gifted with those talents, but there was an instrumental person in my life. His name was Tony Squire. He's a cardiologist at Mount Sinai Hospital who is very good family friend. And literally one day he challenged me and I've been a pretty competitive person in my life, but he challenged me to doing a triathlon. And he was about 10 years older than me. And unfortunately he passed away a bunch of years ago from early dementia, which is, it was devastating in all of our lives, but he challenged me. And I just found this great freedom in the triathlon world was never a great swimmer. I actually hated swimming. Biking I loved because I felt like I was a five-year-old on a bicycle growing up. And running was just kind of like one of these activities that you could get inside your head and just kind of push yourself. And then it just proceeded where this became my world. You know, I did a variety of, you know, Ironman triathlons, you know, built kind of a relationship with the tri-community Troy Jacobson, who was a prior coach, a, a person who I've done some work with, who eventually Human Kinetics, which is a, a great resource for athletic individuals who want better knowledge of anatomy uh, and health, asked me to write a book. I certainly did not do well in English, you know, at St. Lawrence by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I kind of felt my editor was going to say, you know, when I wrote stuff down, like, God, you are an idiot. You know, how can you write like this? But she made very few corrections. And I kind of said, okay, fine, I guess it's okay. And we had pretty good success at it. You know, just from a notoriety standpoint, I don't think, you know, I was certainly not on the New York Times bestseller list. But then when they came out and they asked me to write a second edition, I sat there for about a month going, okay, wait a second. A lot of this is based on anatomy. And I said, anatomy hasn't changed in thousands of years. How do I rewrite anatomy? You know, so I said that to the editor and she started to laugh. So she said, ah, you know, you put in some other exercises, some other, you know, of your life experiences and tidbits, and I'm sure you'll make a great book. So we came out with the second edition, but it was definitely a challenge. How do you rethink some of this stuff? But it's always been, you got to be an active participant in what you do. I find great pleasure when I know that patients come to me because they go, oh boy, look what he did. Now, I'm not the guy, you know, I won't malign one of my older partners who used to say, if, if it hurts, don't do it. I would never say that to a patient. I would always try to change that and say, you know, look, if it hurts while you do that, let's try and do this. Because I know for myself that running athleticism is my anti-anxiety medication. Without it, I'm a happy person, but I'm not a super happy person. And patients, if they come into you and they ask you, you know, hey, I've been running and this and that has happened, and I say, don't do it, 
they look at me like, I, you know, who are you to say, don't do that? So I'd rather kind of give them a different perspective and say, look, it's physical, but it's also emotional. And we got to keep you doing something so that you understand that there's a process of healing. You know, that's the great limitation in science right now. And somewhere along the way, we're going to figure that out. How do you accelerate healing? How can we change, you know, the way our DNA is read? And how can we accelerate the bone healing, the tissue healing? But injuries take time and it's a process. And if you're looking for that quick magic pill, it's just not out there. And that's the unfortunate thing. It's dedication to the process that creates success. And I always tell patients, you know, keep an injury logbook, a diary. On any given day, you could have a bad day, right? Recovery is not this straight line, I'm getting better in six weeks. It's good days, bad days, good days, bad days, good days, bad days. And hopefully those good days you know, supersede the bad days. But when you're stuck in a bad day, you go, wait a second, the four weeks of therapy that I've been doing hasn't done anything. This is ridiculous. But if you look back and you go, oh, wait a second, I did this a week ago, but now I'm doing this a week later. Hey, that makes sense. You know, I'm going to keep going. So it's the process. So I'd love to jump in on that because I, the healing process and I was going to jump in there and, you know, the whole like the six week thing, right? Like I have it in my mind that pretty much any injury is going to take about six weeks. You know, and I just, as you know, I had pneumonia. I got pneumonia, you know, four and a half weeks ago on a Wednesday. Here we are on, I guess, Monday. So, you know, this coming Wednesday will be five weeks. And I went through a couple of weeks of really dark, very much that injury, like I'm injured, shit, I can only do so much. And I want to bring that together with this thing that I've been talking about in my own mind. And I've done it before. I'm not doing it presently. It seems to keep coming up. So I probably will start tonight, which is journaling my health journey, which there's so much to it. And as you said, you know, science falls a little bit short. We're not caught up there yet, but there's so much that we put into ourselves, mind, body, spirit, soul, interaction, social, all the pieces. And if we keep some track of that. To your point, I'm agreeing completely that when we think we're having a bad day and we go back and we look at, you know, for me, when I think I was having a hard time breathing, you know, a week ago or two days ago or whatever, but I had to stop halfway up the stairs and catch my breath before I walked to the top of the stairs. Yeah, that was like three and a half weeks ago. Not any kind of Jeff Volmerick that I'm familiar with from an athletic perspective, but you got to go through it. And then you can look back and go, okay, then what did I do? Well, then I started going for 15 minute walks, flat ground, and then I doubled that. And then I was able to do this. And then I was able to get on the spin bike for 15 minutes. And then, oh, then I was able to bound up the stairs four days ago. Ah, you know, we're in the fifth week of six. <laughs> and then to bring that into a completely like the whole life experience, which is, hey, you know, why do I feel like crap sometime or we're overwhelmed by stress or work or something? Well, when was the last time I did those things, those pieces that I know clear my mind, whether it, you know, be run to the office or whether it be yoga or whether it. And, and this just ties back into something I've been saying a bunch and a lot of conversations have gone in this direction, which is, you know, we need to be responsible. We can step up and be responsible for ourselves as individuals. And we're all going to be a whole lot better off if we're not looking at guys like you and your white coat to give us all the answers. Yeah. Oh, completely. I look, I, I a thousand percent agree with you. You know, I see it all the time. There are people who are prisoners of their disease and it's unfortunate. And that's bred out of a multitude of factors, whether it's education, whether it's motivation. You know, there's so many situations in which someone becomes trapped by their malady. And as a physician, we have to empower those people to take control. I have a very good friend who's a new onset type one diabetic. I mean, it's not so nuanced anymore, 10 years ago. And, you know, this is a 245 marathoner, an amazing athlete, and he developed diabetes, you know, and it's one of these autoimmune conditions, you know, blindsided him. But I could tell you within two weeks, he was on top of taking his insulin and 
kind of regulated everything so well that he still is doing ultra marathons. And again, it's a disease process and it's difficult for him, but he was by no means a prisoner where there are other people who just say, I can't do this. You know, I don't have the facilities to do this and it's unfortunate and it's socioeconomic. It's, it's every aspect, but as a healthcare professional or anybody for that matter, we need to enable people through education, through support, to take control a little bit better of their lives, whatever little component doesn't have to be that, you know, they're the master of their insulin, they're their master of their hypertension, you know, control. But you have to give pieces of a puzzle to these individuals that they're better able to manage themselves and make them happier. Because, you know, as another one of my old partners would say, life is not a dress rehearsal. You got one shot at this and you might as well make it as good as possible. So utilize those resources that you can to get you through this. Yeah, well said. And thank you for that, because I, you know, I mean, I have my own experiences in life and I have said on a number of podcast episodes, like, look, let us not be reliant in the wonderful people, well-educated people that wear white coats and, you know, are MDs and orthopedic surgeons and doctors and oncologists and you name it. Let us not just walk in and be completely beholden to that institution and that idea that this person's going to have the answer. So like for me, I know that I don't need to ask my oncologist as an example about, you know, nutrition. It's just not like, I'm not going to ask that guy that question. There are far better people that to ask that of and to learn from. And so wonderful to hear you, you know, say that that's what you're sharing with your patients, right? Like you got to be an active participant here. Right. Look, I mean, I tell people, you know, classic case of any surgical intervention, you know, I say, I can put your ligament in, I can repair your fracture, but you have to make it work. This is a contract you make with me that I'll do my part, but you have to do your part. And I tell them, I go, I'll be very nice. I'll be very happy. If you come in and say, I've been to physical therapy, you know, and I've done this. But I said, the minute you start to break that contract, I'm not going to be a nice guy because at the end of the day, when you don't have a great result, you're going to hate me or hopefully not, you know, dislike me, but you're going to end up disliking yourself because you're going to see a missed opportunity of what you were given the tools, hopefully to make yourself better. And again, every situation is imperfect. You know, this COVID situation has created a myriad of issues you know, where people have gotten injured during this time and, hey, you need to go to physical therapy. Well, physical therapy places are closed. You know, what do I do now? So yeah, I mean, there are some constraints that we all have to deal with, but it's a matter of solving some of those issues and me being an active participant in helping those people find their solutions. Then individuals being fluid, right? So physical therapy is closed. Okay. What can we do? What can we do on our own? What can we learn? What can we implement? And, and again, just being fluid. May I ask you, let's talk about your life's motto. I think it's fascinating. It's one that I've not heard anybody use before, so I'd love to hear it. Well, again, I will credit this to one of your hosts, Mr. Keith Gorman, who introduced me to the band U2. And the song of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, is truly my life's motto. Now, I won't say that to my wife because I have found what I'm looking for in my wife. But my life as a whole, I think, is a constant journey of trying to find, for no better words, enlightenment. You know, And again, I think I shared the story of my English teacher in high school, who was a Taoist, who told me a story of Rollo, Rollo who searched his life for holes potholes, big holes, small holes. And one day Rollo is in his truck and someone yelled out to him, hey, Rollo, there's a great hole down the street. Go, go get it. He took his pickup truck, drove down, started to back up to pick up the hole. And he got the hole in his truck, but somehow it started to wobble and it fell back off. And in doing so, he put it into reverse and actually fell into the hole and was never seen again. And it's the whole concept of nirvana, of enlightenment that you're constantly in search of something. You probably don't know it, but when you get there, you'll be there. You know, there are times when I have done some of these crazy ultra distance runs. One of them was the rim to rim to rim, 
which is running across the Grand Canyon and coming back the opposite way. I was with a bunch of friends. And it's such a psychological thing. It's all in your head. And if you listen to any of the great ultra distance people, they'll reiterate that, that your mind is a million times stronger than any aspect of your body. And I remember getting to Phantom Ranch, which is at the bottom of the canyon, I'm on our way back. And all I wanted was a Coca-Cola. That's all I wanted. My mind was so focused in on that. We got to the snack bar that closed at four. We were there at 4.30. I was as good as dead to the people that were inside that ranch. They wanted nothing to do with me. There I am, as I said, you know, banging on the glass like Dustin Hoffman was doing in The Graduate. $20 bill in my hand. I just want a Coca-Cola. And the guy looked at me like, I'm a reindeer. You know, we want nothing to do with you. And I just broke. I just broke. That was it. I was done. I lifted myself a little bit. We got up part of the way of the canyon. And I said to my two buddies, I can't go anymore. I'm done. You know, I am just broken. My one mistake in that, which hopefully my wife won't listen to this podcast, but I'm sure she will, is I called my wife that night. We had a cell phone, called my wife. I was just crying on the telephone. I was so, I was in the deepest of my core that I've ever been apologizing. I'm sorry I did this. I can't believe I got so dehydrated, blah, 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 blah. My other buddy went up to a phone booth, which they had them along the canyon in case of emergency, called the ranger. The ranger said, what did you guys do? He said, oh, we went hiking. He goes, no, what did you really do? Because this is now like, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And he's like, okay, we did the rim to rim to rim. He said, well, do you have food? Yes, we have food. Do you have water? Yes, you have water. Do you have clothing? Yes, we have clothing. He goes, well, tell your buddy to lay down, put his legs above his head, go to sleep, and he'll be fine in the morning. So when my friend Fred came back and said, look, the Ranger Rick, as I called him, said, just go to sleep. I, you know, I was kind of like, who the hell is Ranger Rick? I literally got up on my feet and walked out of the canyon, got to a soda machine, which was there in a potato chip machine. I got my bag of Doritos and my Coke, and I was fine. And I went home the next day. And it just, it clicked in my head that my brain just shut me down. I lifted myself up. I just picked myself up and said, I'm not going to let it do it. That was one of the most enlightening experiences I've ever had in a race. In life, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I'm in search of those events. Not that I break down, but I want to get to those points where I'm in my inner core. And I know you've shared some experiences of you that have been very similar. I think that's where you want to be. You want to know who you truly are and what you're really capable of. That's what I'm in search for, but I haven't found it yet. You've had some experiences, right? Where you're like, oh, hmm, that's in the neighborhood. And I think in many ways... You know, there are lots of ways to be looking for that, seeking that, whatever that experience is like, okay, when is the light going to come on? When is there enlightenment or clarity? There are so many different pathways to explore that concept, that, that idea that, and it's been like, it's way above my pay grade to, you know, dive too deeply into it. I know I'm a participant, but my goodness, this has been going on for, you know, thousands of years and, I think it's a wonderful pursuit and I find it interesting and, and I really appreciate that, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for and not in a, in a negative way, right? Like, it's not like you're, I think you're very happy in your life and, and, you know, lots of great things going on and you're fulfilled in your work at the same time, you're comfortable acknowledging like, oh yeah, no, there's more out there. Yeah, there is. I mean, look, the 58s or the 30s right now. You know, we keep pushing that envelope. We keep dialing our clocks back. I mean, obviously our bodies aren't 30, but I think, you know, what you know today, as opposed to what you knew when you were 20 and 30, is just a wealth of knowledge that, and it's still there. You know, I, I, our brain function doesn't degrade like that. And I think we have every opportunity to continue to get better at what we do and search out those new experiences uh, and make us a, a better rounded, more honest, you know, individual. I don't know what I can add to that, Mark. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I, I, um, with these podcasts, it always seems like there's a point where you're like, well, that, that covers it. That's, that's nicely said. And I would like to just piggyback on that a little bit, which is, I hope that we can all continue to be evolving. 
right here. We, we talked, you know, quite a while ago in the podcast about our kids and, you know, these young people that are coming along and there's this coming of age time in life that's 15 to 25 years old. And it's really easy to see. And we know that it's happening. And you talked about your 15 year old and your 21 year old and, and what a magical time in life. And then you've said, oh, we're not 30 anymore. We're, you know, 56 and 58, but we can and I hope, and I know I strive for it, I know you do clearly, to continue to evolve as an individual, as a human. I think it's important to do that. I think it's important for yourself, but it's also important for the environment that you've created around you. It's difficult watching a parent degrade mentally. Thankfully, my parents are still all with it, but I think there's many years for us to continue to cultivate people around us. And I think that's really important. I think all of our values that we can share to create a better community is what we're striving for completely. And it's unfortunate, and we don't we certainly don't need to dive into that, but I just feel like our country is just going in the wrong direction of all of that. I think just this sheer lack of respect of not wearing a mask and not socially distancing and just... I'm not a religious guy, but the Ten Commandments do unto others as you would do unto yourself. I, it doesn't make sense to me, but you know that's a whole nother conversation. But I think it ties in that we have to respect ourselves, but respect the other people that are around us. I also love the piece about you know building community and how we proceed, how we carry ourselves, how we move through this life. We released a new episode today. Today's the 3rd of August as we record. Tracy Evans and I were talking about sitting on the front porch in the context of if we invited a neighbor to come and sit on our front porch, have a chat, that conversation would be one thing. If we were communicating with that neighbor electronically, not the same. In the world, in our country that we're living in that you referenced, if we're a bit more willing to reach out and maybe invite somebody on our front porch who we wouldn't normally, not necessarily somebody we know well and are super comfortable with. Again, lots of my life revolves around this podcast right now. But as I've said to people, I said, look, it's easy for me to talk to middle-aged white guys. It's easy. I am one. The challenge is talking to people who are in different walks of life, who have different backgrounds, different genders, different, all of it, and getting into conversations that can be uncomfortable. But we need to have them. We need to be willing to have them. And then I also think it's really important to be willing to give people space and time to make mistakes in those conversations. We're not always going to say the right thing or do the right thing. So, you know, let's be patient with people that we're in dialogue with maybe move away from being quite so ready to pounce on people, right? Right. Yeah. Look, I think the whole Black Lives Matter, we have to be willing to listen where we've been white privileged without a doubt, but we need to listen. Look, I, I, I see it, you know, so prevalent in New York City, you know, the homeless population and granted some of it's mental disease, but there's a lot of unfortunate people that are out there. A good friend of mine once told me, he said, the worst thing that you could do to not the worst, it's a terrible way of saying it, but a bad thing that you could do to a homeless person is not acknowledge their existence. When they ask you for something, it's hard to give to every single person, but at least if you acknowledge their being there, you know, by saying, hey, I'm sorry, I can't help you today. That's at least acknowledging that they're alive and that they're part of society. By just ignoring them, they're as good as dead. They feel like they're not part of anything. So simple little things. And that's where, you know, you come in and I say, everybody needs to wear a mask, you know, losing that facial expression. We are pack animals. We need human contact. We need to see someone's face because you just can't read what they're thinking with their eyes. You'd like to think you could, but you need to see the rest of their face. Taking that away from us right now is very difficult. I think it complicates things because. I don't think people, it includes all of us, can express ourselves correctly in the manner with words. And we definitely don't do it via texting. You know, the one lesson that I have taught my kids is that you are not reactionary in an email or in a text. If someone 
text you and you feel that it has raised the bristles on your mane, you can write what you want, but you stop and you wait an hour, you wait a day before you ever respond to it because you lack that physicality. You know, you can't talk to someone by texting to them. You can't have a, a disagreement without seeing their body language. So, you know, the electronic world, although it's there and our kids seem to be so adept at it, it's really problematic because I think for 2,000, 10,000 years, humans have been communicating with body language. And texting and emailing take that completely away. And as many uh, as emojis as you can put in to a text to make it nice and, and kind, it doesn't translate the same. And I think that's, that's really a challenge to all of us in this electronic world. Agreed. And you bring up the mask conundrum, you know, so now you got the electronic piece and you've got the mask. You can't see people's face. You can't see if they've got a smile or a frown or, you know, some twisted look on their face, whatever it might be. It's a very challenging set of circumstances that will certainly navigate through. And, and I'm optimistic, you know, we can do the right things and, and we can come out of this better as a human family. Yeah, we've had more difficult, I think more difficult challenges, but this is definitely one of them without a doubt. This is a big one. This is a big one. Mark Cleon, joining me on ATBS, the podcast, I'm so grateful that you, as I said, to open that you're willing and that you were able to carve out some time and spend it here with us sharing your experiences, your life stories, all the good stuff. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been an absolute honor and a joy to be part of this. I, I'm so very proud of where you have directed your life. I, I think that this is a great venue, and I love listening to all of the podcasts that you've put out, especially some of our close friends that share their experiences. I always get a, a chuckle, but this is a great venue, and I, I think it's a great thing that you're doing. And I wish you all the best of luck with this. I sure appreciate it, my friend. Thank you so much, and thank you for doing all that you do. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to ATBS, the podcast and Frontlines with Dr. Mark Cleon. I truly appreciate your interest and enthusiasm for ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep on seeking.